We're starting a new series called God is Working in You. Amen? And the title of my message is Make Me Truly Happy. And so if you're wondering where the uh, idea came from, as we'll see in the scriptures that we unpack in a moment, the series title emerges from Philippians 2 verse 13. The sermon title emerges from Philippians 2 verse 2. So we're going to go on a bit of a journey really with Paul and his time that he's in prison in Rome in Philippians 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, take a moment to turn to Philippians 2. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. I'm reading the New Living Translation. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think, of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest honor and gave him the name above every other name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow, Paul is unpacking an incredible uh, array of thoughts and attitudes for us to consider in our Christian journey. But what ultimately is the motivation for him writing this letter? I think it's twofold. I think initially it seems to be one of thanks. There seems to be a thankfulness emerging from his thoughts and his reflections to the church that he had founded and pastored in Philippi for probably 10, maybe 15 years at this point. It's not, it's not entirely clear. But I think the second motivation is a clear call to reflect into our heart and our attitudes. So let's take a moment now to set the scene of where Paul is and remind ourselves of the context. Paul's in prison at this point. His future is unclear. He's unsure whether he's going to be released. He's unsure whether he's going to be executed. He doesn't know what his future holds, but he knows who holds his future. That's a great thought for us to start our journey on this afternoon. And yet he has undescribable joy. He's gone through a tremendous amount of turmoil, challenges, trials, and stress. And yet Paul, even in the early part of his own life, he was a well-educated Jew. He was from the higher echelons of society. And yet now he finds himself disheveled, alone, perhaps a little bit confused, in prison, abandoned by his friends. He's been brought low in comparison to where he started his life out. And yet that doesn't seem to affect where he is because God had taken him on an incredible journey to shape and to mold his heart for God's purposes and God's plan over his life. And so picture the scene for a moment. He's writing to probably some of his most favorite congregation members, and he's giving them final thoughts, final instructions. The enormity, the profoundness of what Paul has just 
declared here in his word, in the word of God, cannot be lost on us this afternoon. These are so easy words to read, but actually the application itself is a lot, lot harder. We could spend weeks just unpacking the four questions that Paul initially says. And yet he starts with those four questions. And I think that those questions ultimately frame the total chapter of Philippians 2. He makes no attempt to communicate anything other than undiluted, affirming encouragement, reminding us to be strong in the Lord, to be resolute, to be focused, to cultivate unity, and ultimately to imitate Christ. And yet, as I've read and I've reread this letter, it feels like a goodbye letter. It feels like he's hinging and hanging his final thoughts and reflections in Philippians 2. And so it's something that we need to unpack. It's something we need to open our heart and our eyes to, to better understand exactly what Paul is trying to communicate to us. Because the greatest principle that he ultimately communicates and reminds us of is unity. Unity in the spirit, having one mind in Christ, sharing in the same love, learning and demonstrating humility. He shows us that Christ was a humble servant and that we too should become or be humble servants. Now, how was Christ able to demonstrate this servanthood? Well, he was obedient to the Father, full obedience. He only did what he saw his Father do. So don't get into the trap of thinking, well, partial obedience is obedience. No, it's about full, comprehensive, wholesome obedience. And that's the journey that we're ultimately called on as a Christian, to be obedient to God. He willingly chose to die on the cross for you and for I. He made up his mind, Jesus, and he fulfilled it. And so Paul and Jesus had one mind. They were together. There was complete conformity and unity in what they were thinking. So an initial question for us this afternoon, can we say the same? Because you know we have a choice. We have a choice as believers to have the mind of Christ or not. <laughs> and there's no gray area in this. There's not, you kind of have the mind of Christ. You're either having the mind of Christ or you don't. And so if we want to imitate Christ in our journey, central to our actions, to our heart, is developing a heart, mind, and obedience that is Christ-centered. Widely accepted in the Christian circles that the best prayer a Christian can pray is, Our Father who art in heaven. Amen? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That is the greatest prayer that any Christian can pray. Which leads me to my next point. For us as Christians, we need to start getting serious about the call of God on our lives. Can I get a strong amen in the house? Paul knew who he was in Christ. He knew where his strength, his purpose, his identity, his value, everything. He knew where it was rooted and in where it was formed, where it was developed, where it was cultivated, and where he was going. Even though the challenges were there, he knew who he was in Christ. Can we say the same today in our own lives? I suspect that we have to rethink, we have to re-examine our hearts afresh today. We must time and again align and realign our hearts to God's will for our lives. There is no viable alternative. This means that we must surrender our worldly thinking, our worldly attitudes, our default responses to situations. How do you do under pressure? Well, I've always responded this way, X, Y, and Z. Well, you don't always have to respond that way. Or other thoughts that we can sometimes have of, well, you know, this has always been this way in my family. 
Well, you can break the generational curse can stop with you, amen? Why, why, why do we have to continue allowing it? Things can be broken. Chains can be broken. The captives can be free. We can walk in the wholeness, the fullness, the freedom, and the victory because of what Jesus did at the cross for us. We must remove ourselves, though, from the self-obsessed, the conceited, the narcissistic world that we live in. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We must passionately and persistently live our lives in a manner that reflects God's will for our life. The challenge for us, if, if we're desperately honest, if we're desperately blunt with ourselves, is that often we don't want to give up those trains of thought, those trends of attitude, the mindsets, the lifestyle choices, the th secrets in our hearts and in our lives. We don't then tend towards leaning out to look out for others because invariably we're too focused on ourselves. Sobering statements, but potentially very true in our lives. And we're not doing as well in that area as we often think we are. You know, we say we're our brother's keeper, but often the effort that we need to make as a brother or sister in the body of Christ relative to what we actually make is horribly insufficient. But yet in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be empowered to reach out and connect. You know, in the family of God, every single one of us has a role to play. There are no bench warmers. There are no spectators. We are all willing, active, engaged participants in the call of God over our lives and as a church community. The question is, do you know what your call is? Are you engaged with that call? Are you conscious of it? And are you prepared to pay the price and do it? So Paul uh, demonstrates here the motivation for unity, the encouragement that we have in Christ, the comfort of abiding in the Father's love, the fellowship that we get to enjoy in the Spirit, and the affection that we're able to enjoy in every part of our lives. But it's interesting, verse 2, we are called to, quote, agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> Challenging. Take a moment. Those two words, we can just, that can just wash over us. Who here agrees wholeheartedly? Whether you're online, whether you're here in the building, think of someone that you agree wholeheartedly with in every area of your life, whether it's politics, doctrine, how the church should be shaped and formed, your views on life. That's tough. And the thing about it is, it's unanimous. Agree wholeheartedly. So this is not agree to a point where you agree to disagree. <laughs> you know those ones. This is agreeing unanimously. Love one another. Working together, which means there's no cliques, there's no factions, there's no division, there's no I'm doing this and you're doing that and you can go on your way, I'll go on my way. No, 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 no. We're called to work together as an army of the living God to see his kingdom established here on this earth. But Paul at this point clearly has concerns. If you have to make those sort of statements, it would imply perhaps that they're not thinking that way. And I wonder if that's true for some of us in our own journey because they're filled, the Philippians at this point, probably with their own ideas, feeling a little bit self-important, a little bit conceited. Paul doesn't highlight that, but he does give the antidote to such thinking. He calls for togetherness, one accord. Not that your needs, your wants, your desires, but one accord. The journey that we have as believers in the body of Christ to work together for the good of the kingdom. He implores them to establish and exhibit the heart attitude of Christ, an attitude evidenced by ongoing 
humility, willing servanthood, and preferring the needs of others. Now that is easier said than done. But ultimately, Paul is trying to remind the church at Philippi that Jesus voluntarily surrendered his privileges. When did we last do that? It's a sobering question. It's something I've wrestled with in my own life because often when we're challenged, the thing we want to assert most is our place, our position, our intellect, our friendship circles, whatever it is that we're discussing at this point. When did we last surrender our privileges? When did we last allow ourselves to be brought low so others could be brought high? Because in your workplace, I guarantee it in your workplace, it's all about posturing for position and power. I guarantee it. It will be climbing over the back of others in order to get to the front, to get that promotion, to get that pay rise, whatever it is that people are seeking and, and, and striving for. And yet that's not what Paul is showing us here. It's not what Christ shows us to do. And so do we have the thinking and the attitude of the world where I've got to fight to get what I want? Or do we have the heart that Jesus calls us to where it's like I'm prepared to be a willing servant? Because we can't do both. It's one or it's the other. And often in our Christian work, maybe it's an area that we need to think about doing a little bit more and a little bit better. There's a proverb in Proverb 18. Your, each, your gift will open up a way for you to stand in front of uh, great men. So you don't have to fight for your gift. You don't have to fight for the crumbs off the table. If you're doing what God has called you to do, he will position and plant you exactly where he needs you to be in that moment, not because you can share in the victory, but you don't get God's glory. Only God will get the glory. Amen? And it's really important for us to understand that. To the same measure that Jesus served, we should serve. To the same degree that Jesus sacrificed, we should sacrifice. And to the same extent that Jesus served others and met their needs ahead of his own, so should we. Provokes a thought. What would the church look like? What would the church look like if that was instituted by every believer in the world today? I think it would look quite different. I think it would look more wholesome. I think it would look more Christ-like. I think more people would be drawn into the church because we're living out what the Word of God tells us to. We're not competing. We're not in competition. We're not striving, but we're surrendering. And it's a choice that we have to make each and every day. I guarantee you, far greater levels of humility need to be demonstrated and manifested amongst us to do this in our own lives. Now, let's not get confused here. You might be sitting here thinking, well, you know, Scott, actually... Paul is talking to the church at Philippi there. Yep, 100%. But it would be foolish to think that none of this is applicable to us today in the 21st century Western Christian world. If anything, it's more relevant. It's more pertinent now than probably then. In a world that teaches you and equips you to look after yourself and perhaps only yourself, not I'll look after myself and then maybe once I've done everything I need to do, I might try and offer some help to somebody else. No, the world we live in today, unfortunately, teaches us hyper-individualism. Me, myself, and I. It's about what I want, it's about what I need, and I'm going to get what I want, and I'm going to get what I need. And that's not the way that Jesus calls us to live. And so please don't buy into that lie. Please don't buy into the lie of the world, the trap of the enemy, because that is not what God calls us to do. 
And yet the verses here cut right against the spirit of the age that we live in today. Do not allow the needs of other people to be relegated to the margins of your own life. Prefer one another. Consider your workplace, as I've mentioned it. I guarantee that there will be elements of that being demonstrated today. And yet our job as believers is to submit as servants to God, to have the same attitude, the attitude of a servant. There's so many words to describe God in the Bible. There's so many titles that are given and ascribed to Jesus. And one of the ones that I love most is servant king. And I love the order of those two words because most kings have servants. And yet he called himself servant. He saw the word servant as being more important than king. One of the last things he did was to, for his disciples was what? To serve them by washing their feet. The moment you've been on any sort of journey with Jesus, your feet are going to need to be washed. And yet here he is showing them, this is how you live your life. This is what I want you to do. This is the heart and the attitude and the mindset that I want you to have as a believer in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we must work hard to maintain togetherness and harmony with each other. We must set aside our differences and continue to live as an authentic church community, now more than ever in the coming weeks that lie ahead. I think millennials call it doing life together. We must live countercultural to the lifestyle that the world touches and encourages us to embrace. This will mean time and again we will have to resist the inclination, the default position that we have in our hearts to look after ourselves first and choose to encourage others to go ahead of us in their heart and in their journey for Jesus. It is an active decision, by the way. It's not just, well, you know, I'm not going to look after myself now. No, no, no. It's a conscious decision to say, I am going to look after other people. I am going to help meet their needs. And therefore, we need to now explore the attitude necessary for cultivating unity. Do nothing through selfish ambition. Ouch. <laughs> do nothing. So there's no margin for error. It's not on Sundays you can do this. No, no, no. Do nothing through selfish ambition. And yet Paul is highlighting here very clearly that this is likely the first thing that we're going to do. With lowliness of mind, lowliness of heart, esteem others ahead of yourselves. Be concerned with the interest of others. Can I encourage you, make that your goal this week. Meet the needs of somebody else. Demonstrate a heart attitude that reflects the heart of God. Which means that we've got to love each other. How are we doing with that? Easy to say, harder to do. Here's some uncomfortable questions to think about. Have you ever found yourself positioning, uh, posturing, jostling for a position of prominence? Have you ever found yourself turning on the charm offensive to climb to the top of your workplace? Have you ever used somebody as a resource, as a tool, as a goal to further your own agenda? Before you say no, take a moment, one moment, to reflect and consider it. The reality is we probably all have, consciously or subconsciously, without even thinking about it. Can I encourage you in the season that we are in, why don't you go on a journey of serving others? Set aside some of your own goals, desires, agendas. Start to serve the people in and around your life. They are there for a reason. God has placed us in community for a reason. 
It is at this point, though, that we need to examine our attitudes and our heart. Do we only celebrate people in the body of Christ getting breakthroughs if we were part of the story? Are you happy for people to progress in their walk with Jesus as long as they don't progress past you? How is our heart when other people truly succeed in life? Because our attitudes do one of two things. They either poison the life of other people or we can become an instrument that can bring about peace, positivity, pleasantness, and joy. There's no other options for us. And so which approach would Jesus have us embrace this afternoon? I somehow think the latter. Have you ever met a Christian that's combative, argumentative, disruptive, always arguing a point, always just straining on your last nerve? <laughs> you know the ones. As Christians, we can be difficult to work with, to live with. We've got to be honest with ourselves. And as a place to begin, we need to face the facts that sometimes the challenges that other people have are just different to the challenges that we have. But we love to label people. We always assess each other by labels. We assign each other a label. So when you're trying to witness, the first question usually is, are you a Christian? No. Uh, well, then they ask, are you a Christian? Yes. Well, Roman Catholic, Protestant, um, Seventh-day Adventist? What type of believer are you? Um, how long have you been a Christian? That determines how much respect that we will afford to that person. We love to label people, and I think that ultimately we need to remove the labels because that confines and refines people, and yet actually what God wants to do is allow joy to emerge. He wants unity because the moment you label someone, you can bring division. The moment you label someone, you can bring division, and yet that's exactly what Paul is speaking against here. It creates groups within the body of Christ that Jesus doesn't acknowledge or recognize in any way whatsoever. Unity is one of the most treasured gifts of the Spirit. It should be honored, protected, appreciated, and developed at all cost. However, once unity is broken or it's fragmented, we find ourselves ultimately worse off than when we even started. Paul recognized that and understood the truth. And his wisdom here identified the tensions that might have been emerging in the church at Philippi at that point, And he sought to address those challenges and those concerns. And therefore, those same challenges and concerns can exist for us today if we don't examine our hearts and we honestly measure where we are in terms of our humility, in terms of our unity, in terms of our working together, serving each other for the body of Christ. Ultimately, Paul knew that if he did not address the issue, it would enlarge in its impact, it would increase in its, in its influence, and it would ultimately damage the church. And the same likelihood exists today. Because, you know, everything that we do here in KTLCC today does not guarantee us victory for tomorrow. We know that the moment we step out for God, the enemy will step in, and the primary method is to dismantle one of the strongest, most treasured gifts of the Spirit, and that is unity. Now more than ever, we need to come together. We need to serve each other. And so how do we understand the attitude of Christ? Well, Paul unpacks it for us in verses 6 to 11. He describes the perfect example of humility, Jesus himself. And yet we see so many examples in the scripture of what it is to live in community with one another. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is in the upper room, 
we see examples of the power of God operating when we live in community together. Here's another thought. Sometimes as Christians, we are educated in what we know about the Scriptures far beyond our levels of obedience. Far beyond. And that presents a risk. Subconsciously, consciously, we make the goal of our Christian journey to know more. And yet Jesus actually wants us to live more like him. And so our relationship with Jesus can become sterile, clinical, impersonal, because it's all about knowing more, uh, knowing more of the scriptures, knowing more of the world, etc., etc. But ultimately, Jesus wants us to live more like him. And so a thought for us is if you were to examine your own life for the last seven days, would it reflect the heart of Jesus? Would it reflect the nature, the character, the love, the mercy, the grace of Jesus? Or is it someone who is self-effacing, self-motivated, driven by their own goals and their own determinations? Ever heard the one, I'm called to ministry, amen. Can you stack some chairs? <laughs> Can you stack some chairs? No, 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 I don't stack chairs. You can't say that you're called to ministry and not be prepared to stack some chairs. Amen? Can I get an amen in the house? Yeah. Here's the thing. As we draw our thoughts to a close, if serving is below you, then leadership is beyond you. It's as simple as that. If you want a take-home message, if you want something to take home and reflect on, let it be that. Servanthood is a core component of our Christian life and witness. It is not a role relegated to those in lowly positions in any organization or structure that we find ourselves in. It is a lifelong, clear call from God for each and every one of us. The question is, are we doing it? Let me advance our thoughts further. When someone serves sacrificially in leadership to those in their care, in that moment, we create a beautiful example of the self-giving love of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. We should serve people regardless of their position or their title. So can I encourage you this week, examine yourself, look at your life, identify an area where you could purposely and intentionally lower yourself to become a great and faithful servant. What do you think that would look like? I think it would look like Jesus I think it would look like Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. I think it would look like Jesus serving people who were blind, helping people in the margins of society, those that have been discarded, ignored, overlooked. And here's the kicker in all of this. I can't find anywhere in Philippians 2 where there's any grumbling, any complaining. I just see Example after example of love, joy, and servanthood. So please, if you're going to do it, do it with joy in your heart. Amen? Don't, don't, don't be live streaming it while you do your good deeds. Because the Bible says your good deeds are like filthy rags. And so it question the motivation of our heart on why you do what you do. So if you're going to be motivated to do something differently this week, something sacrificial, something servant-hearted, do it quietly. Make it between you, God, and the other person or persons known. Because ultimately, our actions determine whether or not we fulfill or surrender our calling. When God genuinely challenges us, how do we respond? Do we disappear or do we step forward? Do you find yourself unwilling to hear what God has to say 
and asks you to change? Because, you know, here's the reality. Our rebellion to God and his word is going to cost you. Make some healthy, Christ-centered decisions. Don't allow the rebellion to thrive in your heart because it will ultimately cost you. Obedience is also costly, but it will bring you greater blessings and ultimately draw you closer to God. We will never grow in our walk with Jesus if we are continually satisfied with comfort. Growth and comfort are ultimately incompatible. Whichever one you choose, you don't have the other. Let me say that really clearly. If you choose comfort in your Christian walk, you do not have any measure of growth. And where you are today in your attitude, in your thinking, in your mindset, in your heart, 10 years from now, I guarantee you only one thing, you'll be in exactly the same place. But if you take the risk, you step out in faith, you choose intentionally, I'm going to go for growth. I want to mature in my Christian world. I want to move forward. I want to break past some of the attitudes and the hearts and the mindsets that I've got in my life and truly walk the way that Jesus walked. I can tell you only one thing, you're going to be uncomfortable. But are we comfortable about becoming uncomfortable? Now again, the answer obviously should be yes. But we need to count the cost. We need to be prepared to pay the price each and every time because that is the only way that we are going to make progress in our journey with Jesus, in our walk with Jesus Christ. We need to become so convinced of God's plan, of God's purpose in our lives that we don't complain, we don't get upset when things don't go our way. Only then, only then, will we be, will we be able to fulfill Paul's instructions to us, particularly verses 1 and 2. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? If the answer has to be yes to every one of those four questions, because the bridge that connects those questions is the word then at the start of verse 2, which is Paul basically saying, hey, as a result of A, B, C, and D, 1, 2, 3, and 4, as a result of you answering hopefully yes and amen to each of those questions, then make me happy, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Only then will we imitate the humility that Jesus had. Amen and amen.